This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, as always, Olivia, it is wonderful to see you. We are starting this recording session at 1117, so we are late night warriors. I see you with your eyes closed. How are you doing? Are you hanging in there? Talk to me a little bit about what's been going on. I'm doing pretty good. It's going to be a rough night, though, I can tell you, because my eyelids are already really heavy. Week's been really busy. I started my postmasters and working back on this week, so it's just kind of like a lot to juggle and figure out my new balance. But otherwise, I'm doing pretty good. I've got a couple more days of work, and then I'll be off again. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I did not know that you had an interest in the United States Postal Service. Congratulations on being a postmaster. That's got to be pretty yes. cool. yes. Do you get like the little cart with the door on the other side? Yes. Yes. I drive on the other side of the road too. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I know you're going for your post master's, master's degree. degree. I just like the idea of you in those khaki shorts and the little sash bag. You know what I'm saying? Hey, I mean, me and Ellie one year for Halloween last year, the year before we were snail mail and I was a big old post letter. I she love was it. A snail. Well, and I do have to say thank you because I know we were supposed to record last night. If you were listening, you can probably tell that I sound awful. I've got some like kind of sinus thing going on, but I'm here ready to do it. And then also I had a kid throwing up on the carpet last night. So I appreciate your flexibility it was a little more challenging than I thought it would be. Mom was asleep. I was getting ready to come in here to record. And all of a sudden I hear dad, dad, I threw up on the floor <laughs> and she had That's ice like cream after dinner. It was just sprinkles, just oh, mucus no. and sprinkles all over the carpet. It was disgusting. <laughs> like I was talking to when I was talking to you on the phone, I could hear you. Scrubbing the carpet. Yep. I've got that carpet cleaner. It's got like the big brush at the end. You know what I mean? So it's like, mm. but then you always have to rinse the brush off because it doesn't really get out of there when you're, it's gross. But <laughs> anyway, I digress. This is your week. I am super excited. I was looking over these notes. I 
am not familiar with this case, and I'll be honest, and I think I'll hit on it a little bit, but it reminds me a lot of a very popular movie. And I'm wondering as if we go through, maybe we're on the same page with that, but I can't wait to see what you brought. What do you say? Should we just get into it? Yes. Let's do it. Harry De La Roche Jr. was born September 23rd, 1958 in New Jersey. He grew up in Montville, a white collar suburb in northern New Jersey, about 30 miles from Manhattan. Montville had a strong sense of community. It was sprinkled amongst apple orchards, and all in all, it was an easygoing town. And the De La Roche family was well known in that community. Harry De La Roche Sr. was an executive at Ford Motor Company. He was active in Boy Scouts, the local athletic club, and was an avid gun enthusiast. Mary Jane LaRoche was also active in the community. She worked in the library and for the Chamber of Commerce. Mary Jane was also involved with the local newspaper. The family lived in a modest, middle-class home, and neighbors would describe them like any other family. Harry had two younger brothers, Ronnie, who was the middle child, and Eric, who was the youngest. Ronnie was athletic and made friends quickly. Eric was a little mischievous, but always looked up to his big brother, Harry. Now, even though Harry was the oldest, he was always getting picked on by his brothers. He spent most of his time alone, and in his free time, he would frequent the shooting range. His dad being an avid gunsman, the family had four guns in their home. A twenty-two caliber rifle, a twenty-two caliber automatic, a thirty-eight caliber Smith & Wesson, and a 9mm automatic. Harry Sr. was a strict disciplinarian and was known to have a quick temper. He would hit his children with the belt buckles and grab them by their necks when they were being punished. Harry Sr. had high expectations of his three boys. Now Harry Jr. was constantly physically and verbally abused at school. He eventually graduated from Pascac High School in 1976. And after graduation, he reluctantly headed off to the Citadel Military College in Charleston, South Carolina. His father had put a lot of pressure on him to attend the Citadel, but Harry Jr. was reluctant to attend as he had heard that the hazing was quite horrendous for freshmen. And given his history of being mocked, he didn't feel that it would be any different than his previous school years. Harry Jr. would be right. The abuse from other students continued at the Citadel, and he had a hard time adjusting. His grades were suffering, and he developed hatred towards the school. And after two months, he decided he didn't want to continue to attend. Now Thanksgiving break was approaching, and Harry Jr. planned to return home to Montville, New Jersey for the holiday. On the night of November 27, 1976, Harry stopped at a local pub and had a few beers before he continued home to his parents' house. Once at home, he continued to drink in his car, and eventually around 2.30 a.m. on November 28, Harry went inside. A few hours later, around 4 a.m. in the morning, Officer Carl Olson was at a gas station when he heard a car speeding towards a stop sign. Officer Olson approached the road to wave the driver down, and when the car came to a stop, Harry Jr. was behind the wheel. Harry proceeded to get out of the car screaming, They're all dead! They're all dead! before getting back in the car and speeding off. Now Olson called for backup and followed Harry Jr. to his home. As officers approached Harry, he proceeded to share that there had been a problem and he found his parents and his brothers dead. So I'm just thinking about being that police officer where it's like four in the morning, you're in a small town. Hey, I'm just going to stop, get some gas. And all of a sudden, somebody just speeds up to you, gets out of the car and is like, they're all dead. They're all dead. Gets back in the car and takes off. Like yes. my head would be spinning. I don't think I'd be able to process it. I didn't know if you had a similar thought as we were going through, but I was like, man, that would be a really strange occurrence to run into like that early in the morning. 
Yeah, he was just like out there getting gas, and he like he said that it's like a little stop, a two, like a four way stop, and he said he could hear the screeching of the car, and he's like, it sounds like that car is not going to stop at that stop sign. So then he walked to the street and like got his flashlight and was like trying to like wave him down to make sure he stopped, and then that's like when it all happened. Yeah, that's very crazy. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I was just like, man, that would be very strange. Yeah, and at four in the morning, I'd be like, I need my coffee. I'm right, like, I have to sleep. Yeah, because you don't know if he was winding down his shift or like just right. starting his Getting shift. But either way, that's like not how you want that to either end or start. Right. Now, as investigators entered the home, Harry refused to go up the stairs. He couldn't bear to look at his murdered family. And when the officers got to the top of the landing, they were stunned by the horrific scene they found. To the left of the landing, they saw 50-year-old Mary Jane's lifeless body covered in blood. As they entered into the hallway, Harry Sr. was face down lying also in a pool of blood. In the next room, young Eric was lying on the floor, and he had been shot several times. But police were unable to locate the middle child, Ronnie. Now Harry Jr. was brought down to the police station for questioning. At around 12 p.m., while Harry was being questioned, investigators made a shocking discovery at the De La Roche home. In the attic, stuffed in a metal trunk, was 15-year-old Ronnie. Like the rest of his family, he had been shot to death. Now, detectives did not make Harry aware that they found his younger brother. And as the interview continued around 3 o'clock p.m., Harry agreed to a polygraph test. When he was finished, he asked the detective, how did I do? And bluntly, the detective replied, I think you killed your family. Then Harry replied by asking, how much time do you think I will do? And after 12 hours of questioning, Harry De La Roche Jr. gave detectives a 21-page handwritten confession. According to Harry, he told detectives that he had grown to hate attending the Citadel and was afraid to tell his father that he didn't want to go back. He didn't think his parents would listen and that they would be very disappointed in him. Harry told police he didn't know what the best plan was to get out of going back to the abusive military school. That night, he paced back and forth between his room and his parents up and down the hallway, holding the twenty-two caliber pistol in his hand. And that's when Harry claimed he went to his parents' room and stood above his dad for about 30 minutes before saying to himself, I can't go back to the Citadel. Harry closed his eyes and shot his father twice in the face, killing him instantly. Harry shared that his mother was stunned awake and she too was fatally shot in the face. He then walked down the hall to the room his two younger brothers shared. He first saw Ronnie. The boy was lying wide-eyed and awake as if he was in shock and Harry immediately shot him in the face. In his confession, he recalled Ronnie's eyes being glossed over and that they remained open after he was dead. In total, Harry fired an additional five shots at his little brother, Eric, who was on the ground. Harry walked back to his room and in what he described as a brief moment of clarity, heard heavy breathing coming from his brother's room. There, Harry saw 12-year-old Eric trying to get up. He was screaming. And that's when Harry put his hands over his eyes and told Eric, go to sleep, go to sleep, it's just a dream. But Eric continued to scream. And that's when Harry hit him several times in the head with the pistol, killing his younger brother. He then wrapped the murder weapon in a towel and hid it. He then brought his brother Ronnie's body to the attic and locked him inside the metal trunk. Harry moved his father's body into the hallway. He took a shower and then he rushed out of the house to find the police around 4 a.m. Now, at this point, detectives were shocked at how detailed Harry's confession was. It seemed that every sentence described the crime scene perfectly. Harry was read his Miranda rights and was arrested and charged on four counts of first-degree murder. He was immediately placed in a cell alone and held on suicide watch. Now, this is where I wanted to 
kind of talk to you about that movie because what this reminds me a lot of is the Amityville horror, which I'm sure, you know, if you're listening, there was the original one in the seventies and then they remade it with Ryan Reynolds in like the like mid two thousands. But that whole story is about a guy named Ronnie DeFeo Jr. who went into his home and he executed his family this exact same way. But his excuse or, you know, what he claimed was that there was demonic voices telling him to do it. And then, you know, the whole thing is like the family moved in after and those voices caused the new dad to go crazy, blah, blah, blah. But the true story part of it or the part that we can say, like, for sure is true is the DeFeo murders. And it's crazy how this lines up almost exactly because he just went in and was like, yep, mom, dad, siblings, and then went to the bar and was like, my whole family's dead. So it's crazy how similar it is. Yeah, there was some stuff that's like basically like kind of compared it to it um, when I was doing my research. Yeah, I couldn't believe the similarities. It's pretty interesting. Now, public defender John Taylor was assigned to Harry De La Roche's case. Harry initially told Taylor that his brother Ronnie killed his family, and in return, Harry killed his brother. Taylor told Harry that after having a written confession and no physical evidence to point towards Ronnie, that they would have a hard time proving De La Roche's innocence. The defense would then begin to build their case. They argued that Harry had provided a false confession and that the only reason he signed a confession was because he was under duress at the time. The prosecution would offer a plea deal granting him release in 10 years. But Harry refused, stating, if I take a plea bargain, I will get killed. I won't last in jail. And with that, the trial would start January 5th, 1978. Now, remember that the defense was trying to recall its confession. They claimed that Della Roche gave his confession prior to being read his Miranda rights. But Judge James Madden would have to determine if the confession was valid and if it could be introduced as evidence. And after reviewing the argument, Judge Madden confirmed that it was indeed a valid confession. And with that, the trial began. Now, several witnesses testified from the Citadel claiming that Harry was one of the worst cadets in his class. They also pointed out that he couldn't adjust to the difficult rules. De La Roche pled guilty by reason of insanity and testified in his own defense. But Harry would tell a new story. In fact, it was the total opposite of what his initial confession stated. Harry told the court that when he returned home, he found Ronnie sitting in the middle of his bed. He also claimed that his brother had a dazed look on his face as if he was under the influence. Harry told the jury that it was then that he saw Eric lying on the floor with blood around him. According to his testimony, he then went to his parents' room and discovered them both covered in blood. At that point, Harry said he went back and asked Ronnie what he had done. He claimed that Ronnie was mad at his parents for getting onto him for smoking marijuana. And then Harry claimed that he shot Ronnie out of anger for killing his family. The defense attempted to persuade the jury to abandon the four counts of murder and change them to four counts of temporary insanity. At this point, psychologist David Galena took the stand for the defense, and he claimed that Harry was operating in a psychotic state. In total, the trial would last for three weeks. Now, the jury was given two options by Judge Madden. One being four counts of first-degree murder, and the other being acquitted by reason of legal insanity. And after only six and a half hours of deliberation, the jury would come to a verdict. But in the end, the jury found Harry De La Roche Jr. guilty on all four counts of first-degree murder. And he was sentenced on January 28, 1978. At the hearing, he showed no emotion and stated, at least I don't have to go back. He was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences for the murders of his father, Harry De La Roche Sr., his mother, Mary Jane, and his two younger brothers, Ronnie and Eric. Now, Harry would be eligible for parole after serving 14 years and eight months. He was taken to Southwood State Prison in Bridgeton, New Jersey. 
De La Roche was eligible for parole the first time in 1990. However, his request was denied. He would be denied five other times in November 1991, October 2000, January 2005, February 2008, January 2013. And on December 21, 2017, after serving almost 40 years, De La Roche was denied parole again. But that would change on June 29, 2023. Harry De La Roche, now 64 years old, was released after 45 years in prison. Now, apparently under New Jersey law, if anyone was sentenced to a life sentence prior to 1981, they would all usually be eligible for parole after 15 years. And those who had multiple life sentences would typically be eligible in about 25 years. And it's thought that if the parole board did not release him this time, the court ultimately would. This is due to the fact that De La Roche had already served 45 years in prison. So that's it, John. So that's a little strange to me because yeah. it just feels like kind of an arbitrary thing, you know, mm-hmm. where it's if the parole board still doesn't feel that he's remorseful for what he did or anything of that nature, like it doesn't really seem like it should matter whether it's 15 or 25 years. But but it seems like they were like, well, if you fight this, the court will ultimately say, hey, you've done 45 years. You didn't get like your accurate parole timeline. So we're going to let you go anyway. Mm-hmm. But, you know, hopefully after so many years and being, you know, 64 years old, you know, maybe something has changed. I don't know. In his interviews, he, you know, he still goes back and forth on his story. And he says that, you know, he deserved basically an Alfred plea. And I don't know if you know what that is or if you've heard of that. Yeah. The Alfred plea is really interesting because what that essentially allows someone to do is say, hey, I am not guilty. I am saying that I am not guilty of committing this crime. But you're still filing a guilty plea, mm-hmm. which essentially you're saying, I didn't do this, but I'm going to plead guilty. And then you're let out with either time served um, or, you know, your release. And I believe it's set up that way so that the court still recognized you as guilty. So I couldn't turn around and then sue, you know, whatever the New Jersey courts for wrongful imprisonment or anything like that. It's very interesting because it's been used in the West Memphis three uh, case, which was a huge, huge case. Also, there's that documentary on netflix the staircase mm-hmm. about like whether or not this guy pushed his wife down the stairs and i'm forgetting what his name is off the top of my head but he also went for an alfred plea as well saying i didn't do this but i'm gonna say i'm guilty so i can get out so it's very rarely used but it's a lot of people are very critical of it yeah well de la roche has been living his best life i guess out on the streets for the last about two weeks or so But I just kind of came across this and I was like, oh, wait, this guy got out like last week. (laughs) But I did come across some research of, I don't know if you remember this, but there was, I think around 2007, there was um, some abuse reported at the Citadel with like six people. The guys were saying that they were basically shown pornographic things of boys and people were masturbating in front of them. It was like a whole big uh, to do. So apparently there's a lot of um, other corruption happening at the Citadel. Yeah. And I mean, especially back in the seventies, because I mean, even if you think about colleges, things like that, like, you know, now there's laws in place to prevent people from hazing and doing all these terrible things, even though they're still doing it. They are. But back then, I mean, it was a million times worse, you know, So There's no control over it. Do what you wanted. Yeah. I mean, it looks like the Citadel was in a lawsuit 2012 
the allegations of a sex abuse cover up and things like that. So, I mean, if that's what's been happening in the last, you know, 15 years, I can't imagine what it was like in 1976 when he was there. The other thing that I found really interesting was I was looking into the DeFeo murders a little bit more Mm -hmm. because as you were going through the story, I'm like, man, these seem like they were really close to each other. So the De La Roche murders were in 1976, where the DeFeo murders were in 1974. So they're only two Mm -hmm. years apart. And the DeFeo murders were done in Amityville, New York, and the De La Roche in New Jersey. So it would have had to echo. It just there's so many similarities. It makes me wonder if I don't know if inspired is the right word, but if it's like, oh, I can kill my family and then make up the story and maybe people believe me. I don't know. It's just, it's weird that they're so close to each other and so similar. It could have been because he said he contemplated the whole night. Like he didn't know what he was going to do and how he was going to do and how he was going to prevent, you know, his dad from making him going back to this college. I mean, he was only there for two months. He had just started in August and by Thanksgiving, he's like, I'm done. And then came home and killed his family. What's crazy. And I don't know if this is because... It was, you know, 1976 and everybody kind of looked the same anyway. And you're going to tell me they look identical. But I'm going to share my screen with you. Let me take over your screen for a second. So this is Harry Delaroche Jr. in 1976. Yeah. And this is Ronald DeFeo. Oh, so yeah. They, they don't look identical. Yeah, but put glasses on DeFeo and I could see it. And then make his mustache a beard. I could see it. Yeah. Yeah. I just think it's. Again, I don't know if it's just because kind of everybody in the 70s. I mean, if I looked at pictures of my dad from the 70s, it would probably be like, you murder your whole family in the Northeast somewhere. But, you know, yeah, I, I would say the interview that I watched of him was probably like in the 90s based off like what he looked like, what he was wearing, how weight wise and things like that. It's just crazy to think that you could do something like that and get paroled at all, you know, and not that I don't think that people should get parole. But we live in a country where, like, we don't focus on reform. You know what I mean? We don't. Yeah, we don't help our people when they're getting out of prison. Like, there's no way to reintroduce them into society and help them get back on their feet. So they're basically just set up for failure. And then they're safer in prison. So they'll usually commit a crime and go back to jail. Yeah. And it's like, even when they're there, there is nothing as far as, like, intervention or correction or anything of that nature. And like you said, it becomes a life that they're used to where it's like, I can function here like a human. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to go back. You know, I knew a guy in Detroit, his name was Papa Smurf. He used to come to all the venues when you were playing a show and you would pay him and he would watch your equipment for you. But he told me, he's like, Hey, I'm a diabetic. If I need insulin, I do a minor crime. I get locked up. They give me insulin. I get a warm place to sleep in the winter. You know, it's just three meals a day. I'm sure. I mean, it's, it's a safe haven. Right. For him, he was never living healthier than when he was in, you know, local jail. So I would like to think that we could get to a point where there would be reform and rehabilitation and we could let people back into society. But Mm -hmm. it just seems like the way that our system is set up now, it's just, well, good luck. You know what I mean? And that's why so many people end up back. But after that many years to think to kill your entire family and be like 45 years, you know, it just doesn't seem like enough. Yeah, like you're getting out and you don't have family. Even if he has like extended family, I don't think they're going to be his family. The world is completely different from 1978 to 2023. Who knows? I mean, I know they, you know, can watch TV and they're like, get with the times and see that life is evolving. But like to be a part of it and be a citizen in this world from 1978 to now, I would be like shocked. Like, oh, what? I have to do this. Everything's automated. Everything is just different. 
Yeah, I can't imagine like going to jail in 1978, getting out in 2023, and somebody being like, "Here's an iPhone." It's basically like the Jetsons. Here you go. Right. <laughs> we fly space cars now. Yeah, we have Teslas that drive themselves right. and stop. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's got to be crazy. Like before cable, before the internet, before beepers. You know, it's just yeah. Well, this story was really interesting. Uh, like I said, the similarities to the Amityville. I'm a big horror film buff before we recorded this episode i went and saw insidious the red door so i love horror movies and everything like that so the fact that this kind of hit so close to that i found really really interesting i think it was a really good one you might as well shout out your horror virgin podcast that you're always listening to shout out to the horror Virgin. i love that podcast uh if you have not checked it out you definitely should even if you're someone who doesn't like scary movies that's the whole premise they make a person who does not like scary movies watch scary movies so Something that hopefully I can do to Olivia someday in the future. Yeah, but, we got direct flights now to you to me. Yep. You to me? You, you to just me. Get real like Super Mario Brothers there? You to me. You to me. Me. Well, should we talk Deadpool test? Yeah, what you think? What you got? I'm putting this one at a nine straight oh, up. Oh, why didn't they get that high? Yeah, I feel like this kind of stuff doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, but the whole idea of a family annihilator is terrifying to me. Like, yeah. especially when it's your kid to think like, cause you know, as a dad, yes, I'm tough on my kids, but in the seventies, I think we've talked about it before. Like, it seems like part of the culture back then was like, it's okay for you to hit your kids and it's okay for your neighbors to hit your kids or like the local priest to hit your kids. You and know the what principal I mean? and they just called your parents and you could get paddled. But I imagine sending your child to the Citadel probably was not cheap at the time. And probably wanted the best for his family, even though he had his own issues, right? Because like mental health concerns and people weren't going to therapists and working out their issues and stuff like that. So the idea that you could have a kid that, you know, you want the best for and you're trying to give opportunities and stuff like that. And then one day they just come home and they're like, not only am I killing you, I'm killing my mom, I'm killing my siblings. That's why we only have one child, minimize damage. But she's going to get you with that mermaid tail. Yep, no collateral damage, which, by the way, she wants to just wear around the house. I will tell you that. She's like, can I be a mermaid? And then she's jumping and falling all over the place. So for our listeners, Millie is learning to sleep in her own bed. And so a good old aunt bribed her with a mermaid tail to stay in her bed. So now she's got this real mermaid tail with a real flipper. She's loving it. She had to learn in the pool, though, because, it, you know, like her feet are together in that fin. It's not like how she normally does where she can do flips and she's kicking her feet all over the place. So the first couple of times she freaked out a little bit because she was like, I can't can't move move like I normally do. And like your legs are stuck together. Yeah. But I I guess she's she has a legit mermaid tail like mer people, but the Amazon version. Right. She loves it. (laughs) She wants to wear it all the time. But, you know, but again, the idea that that right, that this little kid who's just hopping around, got a big mermaid fin on and like today I'm the best thing ever could get like 18 or 19 and be like, I'm going to kill you. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely terrifying to me. So I think that's why for me, I'm going to put it up at a nine. What about you? Where you put it? I'll put it at about a six. And I think that's just because, you know, I mean, it's scary. And I think comparing it to Amityville Horror, that movie was scary, but I think the demonic aspect of it makes it a little more scary. But yeah, about a six. I live alone. Unless Ricky, Serena or Ellie come after me, I think I'm, I'm okay. I love the idea of like you wake up at like three in the morning and Ricky's just got a gun pointed at Ricky's strapped, just (laughs) ready to go. You can tell the delirium is kicking in, huh? Oh, yeah. I'm on my second cup of coffee and it's uh, midnight. 
Well, that is where we fall on the dead bolt test for this week. I'm putting it at a nine. Olivia's coming in at a six. But as always, we want to know where does the murders of the De La Roche family fall on your dead bolt test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at Check the Locks Pod. Find us on Twitter at Check the Locks. Apparently, we're on Thread. So if you're hanging out over there, reach out, say hello. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? We would love to get to know you. Love to have you. Love to learn a little bit more about you. So come hang out with us. It'd be a blast. We're in there every single day hanging out. Olivia, this was like a real life horror film you delivered for us today. However, I'm a little bit upset that there's no shirtless Ryan Reynolds. I need to get this taste out of my mouth. Can you hit me with a five star review? I'm so sorry about the shirtless Ryan Ryan Reynolds. But yes, I have a five star review. Um, this week's comes from Pawnee Lady. Um, and they said, I've been a huge fan of Check the Lock since I Googled the maths update and found out Olivia had a podcast. Now I'm hooked and I love the podcast chemistry between John and Olivia. And I love the way the episodes are delivered. Congratulations on 700 members in the Facebook group. May the podcast continue to grow. I give five shining stars. So thank you, Pawnee Lady, for leaving us this five-star review. And I'm so glad you came across our podcast. And speaking of 700 members, did you see the picture John posted of himself in the Facebook group, anybody? Well, they can't answer you. They're not recording. I know. Uh. It's a rhetorical question. That means they should go look at the Facebook group. And look young, at the young man, young, handsome man. With a lot uh, of hair. A lot of hair. That hair is all gone nowadays. But yes, Pawnee lady, thank you so much for sharing and thank you for being part of our Facebook community and, and just part of the Check the Last community in general. I'm also curious, let us know if the Pawnee reference in your name is in reference to Parks and Recreation. Because if so, I love it. Bye-bye, little Sebastian. It's an amazing show. Let us know. But we would love to send you some stuff. Reach out to us again. You can find us on Instagram, Check the Locks Pod. Twitter, Check the Locks. Sounds like you're hanging out with us in the Facebook group. And if you're not a social person, go ahead, head over to checkthelockspod.com that email button you can send an email let us know where to send out some stuff and we'll get it out to you right away we got stickers buttons all sorts of cool stuff thank you for taking time to support the show and olivia if somebody wants to have their five-star review read on the podcast what's the best way to do that well they need to hop on over to the apple podcast app as i say every week and they need to go to our show's homepage, scroll all the way down to the bottom where you see all five stars click all five stars and just leave us a little love tell us what you think about the podcast and then maybe we'll read yours next Exactly what Olivia said. Head over and leave those reviews for us on Apple Podcasts. And I know some people have reached out and said, hey, I don't have an Apple phone or I don't use a Mac computer or anything like that. You can still leave us a review at checkthelockspod.com. We love to read those as well. These reviews are super important because it helps other people find the show. It helps us get into other shows recommendations. And if you're just checking out Check the Locks on the website, they see a five-star review. That person may be more interested in listening. So they really do help us. This is a completely grassroots thing. So do exactly what Olivia just told you to do. Head over to Apple Podcasts, or you can go into the show notes. There's a link that you can click. Leave that review for us today. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks. Get signed up today. We got a bunch of different tiers, exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all sorts of stuff. Plus, you get the episodes early and ad-free. So if you love Check the Locks, but you hate commercials, that is the best way to check it out. And I will tell you, Olivia, you got a new microphone this week. We are stepping up the game. We're reinvesting back into the show. We could not have done that without our patrons, without the people who support us. So 
Just want to say thank you and let you know we really are working to make this as good as possible. Yes, I'm a real professional now with my new microphone. I don't know if y'all saw on my Instagram that I have the best co-host ever who surprised me with a nice new fancy microphone for his not so tech savvy co-host. <laughs> hey, you're doing great. Just a little bit of a setup issue earlier today, but doesn't matter. We got it and everybody learns as they go. You're doing absolutely wonderful. Thank you. But if you would like to help us continue to grow, continue to invest back into what we do, head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks and get signed up today. And if you cannot financially support the show, we definitely understand. We say this every week. We mean it every week. Just listening and sharing what we do with your friends and family means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, if you're listening every week, you're letting the people you care about know about the silly little true crime podcast. Just know that from the bottom of our hearts, we appreciate it more than we could ever tell you. Again, this is all about being grassroots. That is how we're going to grow. You let people know to listen. They let people know to listen. And the next thing you know, our community is just growing and growing. So again, if that is you, you're listening every week and share what we do. Thank you so much. We cannot tell you in words how much it means to us. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Goodbye. Seven o'clock. Oh, yeah. See you.